You're very welcome to the Football Talking Tour podcast with Senior Times. My name's Aon. And I am Gary. And today we're delighted to speak to Professor Paul Rouse from UCD as we talk more about some of the themes that we explore on our football walking tour. We're delighted to have on our podcast uh, today Paul Rouse, Professor of History from UCD and author of the book Sport. Uh, and Ireland. You're very welcome to our podcast, Paul. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So as you as you know, um, we have a, a walking tour, myself and Gary. Yeah. We, we go from 1916 all the way up to Jackson Army. We're fascinated by the revolutionary period and we're fascinated by the growth of, of soccer in Ireland and who was playing it and who wasn't playing it. And, you know, sometimes there can be this myth that true revolutionaries of the IRB uh, War of Independence period were all GA people and, and that there can be a sense that you know, soccer people were the garrison game, the British Army backgrounds. Um, but it's much more, it's it's less, much less defined than that because there's quite a number of people who are who are playing the game, playing soccer in Dublin and and, and around the country who who are quite fervent Republicans as well. But the game itself, if you could take us back, Paul, we know that the IFA was founded in 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 eighteen seventy nine. Who was playing the game in that period? Where was the strengths? And, and is it true to say that there was actually the British Army um, that, was, that was heavily involved in the growth of the game in the early period? Well, well, first of all, we have to understand that what's presented as the history of sport in Ireland, which draws heavily on Harry Boland's famous fa- phrase that the GAA drew a line between the garrison and the gale, and the idea that you if you wanted to be truly Irish, you would play Gaelic games. And if you didn't play Gaelic games, you, if you chose soccer, rugby or, or, or cricket or hockey or some other sport, that you were somehow a lesser of an Irish person, it collapses immediately. The, the minute you go belong, beyond the veneer of it, what it is really is a cartoon history, which strips out all complexities, all level of personal choice and reduces everything to matters of identity and national identity. And as we all know, that's not how life works. It's not how sporting choice works. And it's not how it worked in the context of Irish history. And if you look, I think the place to start is 1916 and what was happening either side of the 1916 rising, just to demonstrate the inventions, the lies, the mythology that was constructed around everything that happened in that period. And I'll take a couple of examples. Uh, of this, if I can, on the one hand, you had the Gaelic Athletic Association claiming that its members freed Ireland essentially by stocking the revolution, mm. by providing the manpower, and it was all men in terms of the Gaelic Athletic Association, uh, stocking stocking the revolution, and that not one of not one GA member joined the British Army and fought in the Great War. On the other hand. It was said that, well, sort of soccer and rugby, they went to the front. And what would you expect? And of course, that finds its resonance in the most iconic images of the city. So, for example, Hill 16 is absolutely associated with Dublin and famously was built from the rubble of the general post office, pulled in handcarts. And a brilliant thing happened in 1966. Uh, the, 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 the Irish Sunday Independent journalist Raymond Smith was having a pint in the oval bar when he was writing, uh, we're taking a break between writing his column for the Sunday. And he came back in, haven't had a pint. He says, finally, I found a man. I found a man who was paid five shillings a load to pull the rubble from the GPO up 
O'Connell's drop became O'Connell Street and the making of Hill 16 and famously there that the O'Reilly's car was supposed to be pulled up from outside it, which is one of the great extraordinary achievements of Irish history because Hill 16 was actually finished in November 1950. <laughs> um, and the whole thing was invented. Yeah, Tim, we had Tim Carey on the podcast and he, t- and he talked us through this. And, and as, as I suppose kids growing up, this was part of the mythology of Crow Park. This is a sacred space. And sure, look over there. Didn't, didn't yeah you look but all it was, around it was known as hill 60 the it was known as hill and 60 it's, and it's just and it's just not true but yeah there were more gaa men fighting in the battle of the somme than there were in the gpo that's that's just a simple fact and by the way when you flip that then it was presented as if there were no soccer players involved in the 1916 rising or there were practically no soccer players in the war of independence and again it doesn't hold muster apart from anything else if you look at the members of James Connolly's citizen army who fought in, in the GPO largely and were, came out of Liberty Hall, they, they had many, many soccer players with, 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 within their ranks. And indeed, by the way, other sports were represented when you come through the War of Independence. There was a guy who was an international golfer uh, and so on. So this is, this is mm. much more complicated than people, than people wish, to, wish to make it and wish to imagine it. Can I ask... Um... Paul, like the beginning of uh, sort of predating 1916, when organized sport and soccer came into this country and and other games as well. When, you know, when did they start? What was the background, you know, in the late sort of 1800s to, to what games were being played and by whom? So, the, yeah, that's that's a big question. Um, the 1850s, the first organized football club, what was called a football club, was was established in Trinity College, Dublin in 1854. But this was before the establishment of either the Rugby Football Union or the Football Association in England. So it wasn't codified rules in the modern sense. What it was was a set of rules which were heavily influenced by the game that was being played in rugby school. And for the next 20 years, that club, to a greater or lesser extent, played a game called football in College Park. And from that game in Dublin, it spread out into different schools, was taken on by alumni of Trinity. Clubs were then established in Wanderers, uh, Wanderers Football Club, Lansdowne Football Club, often by alumni of Trinity College and brought, brought out. Ordinarily, after 1871 and the foundation of the Rugby Football Union in England and then the subsequent foundation from 1874, readjustment in 1879 of the Irish Rugby Football Union, most of those clubs gave their allegiance, those that survived, gave their allegiance to rugby. The game was played almost entirely in Ireland by people who went to Trinity College or were of the professions or were were of a very certain class in Ireland or associated with a certain... Uh, schooling within the country and that's how that's how a network of clubs was established very slowly in the late 1860s more in the 1870s and more again in the 1880s the game began to democratize and popularize but again rugby was ordinarily with the singular exception of limerick rugby was ordinarily the game of people of of some means not necessarily rich by any stretch of the imagination but of some means in terms of of soccer Soccer came first in a formally organized way into Belfast. And I think it's the explanation for that lies in Billy Bragg's marvelous phrase about Belfast being a northern industrial town 
it's not Leeds or Manchester, it's Liverpool, it's a northern, it's not Liverpool, it's a northern industrial town. And it's in this, those kind of terrace streets that soccer really mm. developed in England in the 1870s and the 1880s, particularly through the 1880s. And that spread across, that culture spread across into Belfast and the trappings of the Saturday newspaper carrying the results of matches mm. and uh, clubs being formulated around streets and pubs and clubs and friend, networks of friends spread first into Belfast and did not spread into Dublin in the 1880s in that way because there was another way that soccer was being played in the country and that was it was adopted by educational institutions and it was played by, 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 by the army. So various educational institutes around the country began to take on the game. There was a third way in which it was being spread and that was by every year about 1,000 Irish boys went to secondary school, went to, went to school in England. And many of those guys brought home with them the games that they played. Often it was rugby, sometimes it was cricket, and occasionally it was soccer. So they brought to their local areas the playing of soccer in an informal way. So through the late 1870s, you see places like Gaishal and County Offaly, beside where my father's from, where a local landlord's son brought the game in and played a match. And at the same time, a soccer club, was a soccer team, was put, was put together in Tullamore to play against them. So they played against each other in, the, in, in 1876, 1877, 1878. So, so at what point did it become this generalization of soccer being the urban game of the working class, the GEA being a country person's game, if you like, and rugby being the game of the, uh, of the more money classes. That's a very clumsy description of the three games, but it, it has some resonance with people who might describe it to somebody who isn't Irish. And but, how accurate is that? And, and if it is in any way accurate, how, how soon was it that it had that kind of feel about it? Those the three games played by very different people. But it, it's, not, it's, it's not an entire invention. Yeah. Because it's like many of these things, it was rooted in a certain truth. Um, because soccer spread like wildfire from the late 1890s and through the early 1900s um, on the streets of Dublin and around, around Dublin suburb, around Dublin places. And it did, became, did become a game that was adopted in areas where there was no organized sport. It did not have, rugby was associated from after 1900 with, with um, fee paying schools yeah. and the schools of the growing middle classes. And it was taken on the universities. Gaelic games had its strength in Munster and in South Leinster. And the people who played Gaelic games in, in Dublin were often country people who were up working. And that's not to say it was just country people because there were a lot of dubs playing and I, I, I don't want to insult any Dubliner, but the basic fact is that Dublin have six All-Ireland Hurling Championships and only one of the players on that team was born in Dublin. The rest that's true. Were country I, people I think it was not Dublin. until 1955 when the Dublin team had played in the All-Ireland final that day was all Dublin born. Previous to that, almost every single side was predominantly countrymen. For Before that, yeah, but, but Dublin didn't win that day. So I'm saying no. the six that won, won all oh, yeah, sorry, were, yeah. were country people living in Dublin. And and that's the reality of the strength of hurling in particular. Now, the football teams did have many more Dubliners born in them. And football has always been stronger in, in Dublin than, than, than hurling is. And I, and I, and, and, and I appreciate that. But um, it's, it's at the same time, the spread of soccer, it was easier to organise. You needed fewer players. And it's really simple. By 1902, 1903, 
if you go to the Phoenix Park, there were two GEA pitches and there were more than 20 soccer pitches. And there was a question in the House of Commons about this. How can you possibly allow this? This is discrimination against the Gael in his, in his capital city. And the, 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 the commissioners just simply answered, but this is a reflection of demand. We are, we are responding to the demand of people for pitches. And there was only demand for, if people want more Gaelic pitches, we'll give them more Gaelic pitches. But the reality of it is more people wanted soccer pitches. And it comes down to that basic choice as the GEA, the GEA almost collapsed and died in the 1890s. There was a huge wave of problems for the GEA after the Parnell split in the early 1890s and through enormous emigration from Ireland in the 1890s. And into that space, a new generation of GEA officials took over at the end of the 1890s and they moved to radicalise the GEA in their own mind. And they sought to introduce, they introduced a series of rules, the ban rules, mm. which banned from the membership of GEA people who played or watched soccer, people who were members of the British Army, people who were um, um, members of uh, the, the uh, prison officers and so on. And they sought, in Harry Boland's phrase, to construct a line between the garrison and the gale. But really the divide was not between people who played Gaelic and people who played soccer and people who played rugby. It was between people who saw in the GEA a project of national liberation and thought it could be used for this. Mm. And those others who didn't see sport or didn't see sport necessarily as an expression of identity. And there were a lot of people, you can see it from all the reports of all the meetings, there were huge numbers of people who opposed the introduction of the ban rules. There were a huge number of people who simply defied them and ignored them. And you can see then the cases that were taken against them. And the overlap in membership between people who were playing soccer and rugby and Gaelic games was quite large during these years. Isn't it true that cricket was a big game uh, around the turn of the century from the 19th into the 20th century? My understanding is that Michael Cusick himself played cricket, as did uh, Carl Brewer, uh, and they had to decide whether cricket was going to be part of the, uh, of, of, of the GAA, and they had to make that decision, isn't that right? Oh, it's exactly right. And, and it goes back from before 1900. If you look at the 1870s, the largest game in the country was cricket. And this was not a game of the garrison. It was played by the garrison, so it was a garrison game. And it was played by landlords, so it was a landlord's game. But it was also the game of Cush, Winter, and the Heron. It was spread all of... It was spread in every single county in Ireland. There were cricket clubs. Um, I read a book yesterday about cricket in Wexford, which looked at about 200 cricket clubs in active in Wexford at the end of the 19th century. It's, it's kind of amazing. Michael Cusick loved cricket. Michael Cusick taught in the French college in Black Rock, as Black Rock College was, was then known. And there's a record, there's a brilliant record in the Black Rock College accounts of 1875, where Michael Cusick bought a pair of cricketing pants and a bottle of brandy. And they were the two great loves of his life at the time, drinking cricket. And he wrote in 1882, by the way, he also founded a rugby club in 1879, played in the first ever Leinster Senior Rugby Club match, uh, called himself a sterling lover of the game of, the rug of rugby and used to play in the pack. But in 1882, as late as 1882, Michael Cusick wrote that there should be a cricket club established in every parish in Ireland that had taught boys good temper in the face of danger. And he saw, he saw no problem with it at that stage, but then he changed. And he changed because of a couple of very particular reasons. It was to do with Irish language revival, it was to do with the, the, the growth of home rule. It was the background of land war. And it was to do also with his, his own personality 
which was one of an exceptionally difficult man, like born to serve on a one man committee. He there was pretty much pretty much nobody. I'm writing that one pretty down. Pretty much nobody that, that, For my that work. Michael Cusick couldn't fight with. Pretty much nobody he couldn't fight with. Right. It was actually brilliant. It was a brilliant line that he uh, he wrote a brilliant letter to the newspapers. Um, he got a letter. The GA was given to Athletics at the beginning. Yeah. And he got he got a letter from his former friend John Dunbar after a rival organisation to the GEA called the Irish Amateur Athletic Association had been set up. They fought like cats and dogs for a year, banned each other's athletes from each other until Archbishop Croke stepped in and said, this is ridiculous. This is a small country. You don't have to join together, but at least recognise each other's athletes. So John Dunbar, who was once a friend of Michael Cusick's, wrote to Cusick and said, the Archbishop has spoken. Uh, we need to act here and put the two things together. And Cusick wrote back to Dunbar, sent him a letter which he sent at exactly the same time to all the newspapers in Dublin saying, dear sir, I received your letter this morning and I burned it. You're a sincere. <laughs> so that's the kind of personality you're dealing with here. So, and so it isn't a huge leap. An absolutely to, extraordinary man. But it isn't a huge, it isn't a huge leap to suggest that some of the, you know, the, the, the traditional hurling strongholds have a strong cricket heritage and there might be a link between those two things. Or if I said that out loud, would I be beaten up by people from Kilkenny and Wexford who feel that, you know, they're hurting I, I, heritage I tell you what, handed down from Cucullin, etc. It, it's, it's, it doesn't hold water, Aon, okay. uh, because it is true that many of the former cricketing strongholds are, were, big cricket, were, were big hurling areas. So, for example, Tullerone and Kilkenny it was a massive hurling area after, after the 1880s, but it was a huge cricket, and cricket survived there well after the foundation of the GA. But there was cricket was everywhere. So there's a huge amount of cricketing, cricketing areas where... where People are more likely to see a spotted giraffe than see a hurley. So it's it's okay. it, you can't make that you can't make that parallel. But going back to soccer for a second, and you spoke about a very somebody with a very difficult reputation in Michael Cusick. Jim Larkin also had a very difficult reputation. But we, we find it interesting in the tour when we talk about the lockout in nineteen thirteen, and that when it came to a head in the end of August nineteen thirteen, that it was actually a soccer game between shells and bowls that was at the heart of the, of, of that weekend of dispute. Yeah. So when it comes to the War of Independence, we're all very familiar with Bloody Sunday and what happened on that November day. But what is less known is about the Shells-Bowes match, which Larkin, I think, identified, or we think identified as a potential uh, venue of protest because he suggested there was a scab playing for both sides um, and the people of Dublin needed to stop this game going ahead. So at that point in 1913, soccer was therefore very much the working person's game, right? In 1913, oh, yeah, in Dublin. So so, soccer, soccer vied with like GA was still being played in 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 communities around Dublin. So like I wouldn't disregard it mm. in, in that respect. But there is no doubt that soccer was was absolutely exploding in Dublin. The iconic images of Dublin, the crowds that were going to the games, it was it was of soccer. And already, by the way, it was looking cross channel and the best players going cross channel ultimately. Yeah. Um, so there was a really interesting culture there, but you had the first professional players living in the city. You had a successful Irish national team, which was getting much more coverage in. in won the home championships in 1914. Patrick O'Connell being the, <clears throat> the captain. Yeah, and it's it, that's that's a massive that's a massive statement when you look at the first ten years of the Irish international soccer team. They just got basically milled whoever they played against and milled by a lot of goals, but the game had progressed to the point where there were significant numbers there and significant numbers playing. And there was an infrastructure. Grounds were being built around the city and more people were going. And it was, it was, it was, it was both, it was, it was becoming the business 
that it ultimately became in terms of professionalization. And, uh, and actually, in the 1911 census, you can see, you can see professional soccer players, you know, being, being existed in that. And there's a really interesting book by a man called Neil Garman, Association Football and Irish Society. And he sets out a lot of these details of professionalization and this links with England and, it, and the English leagues and players going over, but also the fact of the coverage of the English game and the fact that Irish players were doing well there and it was celebrated. Mm. So, so soccer was soccer was embedded now in the culture of of Dublin, and it happened really quickly. Like it, it really happened quickly, and it took a hold quickly. And the strength of it was, and the strength of it can be seen in the minute books of the the Leinster Senior League and of the Leinster Football Association, which are held in UCD in the archives in UCD, and they show a story of consistent spread first of all around Dublin and then that push out into provincial towns which is really really important so the players who were revolutionary then I mean you made the point here about less of a split between you know uh, who, who was playing what game uh, instead of a, of a split between those who felt sport was was an avenue to national liberalization and those who didn't so like we speak of people like like Oscar Trainer, um, Gary has a has a great gag about Oscar Trainer, which only Northsiders get. Uh, yes, um, uh, Oscar Trainer before he was a road. Yeah, so uh, that's, he was yeah. also <laughs> and a mal in Northside Shopping Centre. Uh, but so we can identify the Southsiders. Yeah, on his tour. Southsiders go what, Waterloo Road, Flagler uh, <laughs> yeah. Street, Torquay Road. What are you talking about? Uh, so as soon as we mentioned uh, Oscar Turner Road, we we know who our audience is. And uh, but he he was a he was a big uh, soccer advocate all through his life. He he didn't enjoy this sense that you were more Irish. Yeah. And this uh, this phrase actually persists today. I hear Joe Brawley saying about being a Gael. You know this idea that mm. you know a true Gael and that being a Gael. Um, he didn't he didn't equate those two things. No, and definitions of what a gale is is really interesting um and what people believe it to be is really interesting and how you define yourself and how you perceive yourself is really interesting when how people present it and what you're told you are and one of the great mistakes that people make when they're historians or when they're people who are politicians or journalists trying to look back at the past in a kind of an extractive way mm. and say um, oh, I'm going to instrumentalize this particular fact to prove my point in the present. What they often do is ascribe motivations to people. And one of the, one of the worst things uh, you can do is ascribe motivations to people by virtue of the games they play. You, uh, there's, a, there's a great line in a Henry James short story. Um, I think it's called Nicola Talent. Or not Nicola, I can't remember the name of the story. Uh, but it basically is... Uh, never say you know the last word of any human heart. And I, I would look at that when it comes to making decisions about why people chose games. And ultimately, the network of choices that people made are about where they went to school or if they went to school, mm. what their family played, the geography of their upbringing, where they worked, the pub they drank in, and basically were they good at something. These are a whole load of different reasons. And we can add seven or eight different other reasons into that. And sometimes it's mixtures of different reasons. But the idea that, that 
ideologues of every stripe, green and orange, have sought to paint people into boxes and still seek to paint people into boxes. Well, and they try to do it with culture. Well, it, may, it, it, it certainly could cross you there, Paul, but it, it's, it was certainly very prevalent when I was growing up in the 1970s. I became very, very aware at the age of around 10 that this game that we played, soccer, football or whatever, in my quote-unquote middle-class upbringing, was really just um, a, a precursor to the days when you'd start playing rugby and you'd yeah, be a kind yeah. of a man. And and other, uh, dare I say it, Church of Ireland games like, <laughs> like cricket, uh, which wasn't always the case, you say. But, but the politics of it and what it meant, and it meant if you played this, you went to that kind of a school. Uh, and it, it seems to continue to this day. I, 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 so, so I agree with that. And, and again, I grew up in the 70s as well. And um, it was, it was, it's really interesting to hear people talk about the meaning of games and how games become, come to assume a meaning. And a lot of things happened after 1922 in Ireland, which forced this to happen. And part of this is about what the decisions that the state made. Mm in terms of what was acceptable and what it would support. And if you look at, for example, the entertainment tax that was introduced yeah. by the state mm -hmm. in the 1920s, yeah. the GEA did not just lobby that it should be exempt from the tax. It lobbied that not alone should we be exempt, but soccer and rugby should pay it. And that, mm. was, that was really important. Number two, it was argued that the games that should be covered on 2RN and, and uh, the, the national radio station as founded by JJ Walsh in 26, that it would be soccer or that it would be uh, hurling and football, but we wouldn't certainly be touching these other games. When the Talton Games, this fast sporting spectacle held in Dublin in 24, 28 and 32, the 24 Talton Games, this kind of celebration of Irish identity, a vast, it was bigger than the Paris Olympics that year. And the sports in it were hurling and Gaelic football. They were the field games in it. There was to be no hockey. There was to be no soccer. There was to be no rugby or cricket. And it's 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 really interesting to watch how this happened. Now, that's not to say that these sports were not accepted by the state, because if you think about it, rugby had a really troubled, problematic existence. The tricolour didn't fly over Lansdowne Road until the 1930s. The mm. anthem that was played every year when the Irish rugby team played in Belfast was God Save the Queen. Mm. It was only in 54 that when, the, when all rugby matches, all internationals were moved to Lansdowne Road that that ended. Rugby was played on a Saturday and not on a Sunday, mm. ever, until that began to change in Limerick. And for its part, soccer, on the one hand, you can say soccer was the working class game and it was excluded by certain schools. It was, it was excluded by the rich Catholic schools where rugby was prominent. And it was excluded often by Christian brothers who ran schools around Dublin and beyond where they wanted Gaelic games to prosper. So it lived in a space outside the official education system. Mm. And I think that really mattered and was a statement. But that doesn't hold true fully because the only All-Ireland soccer competition that survived independence on an All-Ireland basis was uh, the Collingwood Cup, the, 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 the competition between universities. universities. Yeah. And, like, and, that, and that matters. It matters because it shows you that it was being played. If you went to university in Ireland before the 70s, Unless you were a scholarship kid and they were very few, you were middle class in, and you were male almost, almost, almost always. Um, that's the first point. The second point is the state recognized 
the Irish football, the Football Association of the Irish Free State immediately mm. yeah. in 1922. Because it was important for them to latch on to anything that displayed a sense of independence from the, pre- from yes. the previous. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's a really complicated thing, but in 24, the fact is that when the Irish team competed in the Olympic Games in Paris in 24, there wasn't a national flag established at that stage. There wasn't a national anthem accepted at that stage. There were people there with tricolors and people with green flags and harps. But the song that they, that was played was Let Air and Remember. It was a Thomas More melody. It's only afterwards that these things began to come. And that football association, the Irish Free State, couldn't get matches. I mean, it's a fair statement. Mm. No, no, Northern Ireland didn't play our, our, the Republic of Ireland, what became the Republic of Ireland, until the 70s. 79. England yeah. didn't play until the mid-40s, as you know. But, but Scotland and Wales were really slow as well, out of solidarity to... To, to Northern Ireland and I, I, I think that matters and I, I think it really matters as well by the way that there was no agreement between after the split between the Irish Football Association and the Football Association of the Irish Free State around jurisdiction and I, I do think it is remarkable that there are 25 and more players who played for both Ireland both Ireland's because they were both called Ireland until the 1950s and if you look at 48 the fact is Jackie Carey, yeah. by then the greatest soccer player that Ireland had produced by all re- repute. He captained Ireland fair enough in Goodison Park to that, in that famous victory, mm. the first time England had been beaten on English soil by a, a non-home counties team. But he, he played for Northern Ireland against England three days previously yeah. in Belfast. Like these are these are complications that mm. we speak of a lot will... of those players. We speak of like people like Paddy Moore and people like Alex Stevenson. We speak of um, actually of a goalkeeper. We had a great conversation with Jerry Farrell here about um, Tom Farkerson, who refused to call up from the IFA in 1931, and opted instead for for he's an ex IRA man. Goes to yeah. Cardiff, wins an FA Cup at Cardiff in 1927, changes the penalty rule forever because he kept running off his line. Uh, and that's why today goalkeepers have to stay on their line. So, so, so there's a lot of interesting characters through that period. But the, the establishment of the free state and its view of of soccer is interesting because that entertainment levy, as you say, I think Oliver St. John Gorty, is, who was a soccer player, <laughs> senator, uh, is, is qu- quoted as saying that they should have have put a double tax on Gaelic football because it was a bastardised <laughs> game. I, I, I think that we heard that quote recently. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. You go into the 30s and, okay, the, the levy is, is quite political. But then, you know, Douglas Hyde, new president of Ireland, a symbol of Irishness, if you like, founder of the Gaelic League. Mm-hmm. Patron friend of, of Michael Cusick. Friend of Michael Cusick goes to a soccer international in 1938 in Dalyman Park. And the GEA is strong enough and powerful enough to sanction them and to and to effectively 
ban him from their association. Yeah, but they lose by doing it. And okay. it's really interesting that that story is is it's 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 frankly kind of unbelievable when you look back at it from from the remove of 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 almost 90 years, 80, 80 plus years. And it's so much from a, a different era. And the person who led the banning of him, you know, it was a very, very smart man. And but he was he was a zealot, an absolute believer in the idea that we had fought a revolution, not to create a, a society that would just have different colored paint boxes or post boxes that would actually live true to the ideals of those who had fought in 1916. And this whole this whole thing about being beholden to the martyrs of every revolution is, of course, a disaster for those who were forced to live in the state afterwards, uh, because you can't you can't live up ever to to death i mean as a form of sacrifice really can you I can't mean, live up to death no, that is no, one, a tough one. another one of the great it's lines a tough one. it's a tough one yeah um, in fairness it, it, re- it really is it really is hard but 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 these so this man he just believed too much and 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 he he sought to actually or the and the ga central council sought actually to put in place the lip service that was spoken all around society at the time. I was ultimately wrong. And by the way, this is not a defense mm. of what I was doing. It's just an attempt to, uh, to, 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 to explain it. And they, they believe themselves under, under threat from all sides. Can I ask you, Paul, when did the kind of um, this very strong correlation between um, the, the GAA and national identity and, and the, the, the national sort of cultural question and all the rest of it, um, it's tentacles everywhere. When did that start to become really sort of entrenched? I, I think it's from the twenties. I, I think I think there was a whole thing happening between the twenties and thirties. It's it's one of the forgotten things of Irish history that in the twenties and thirties, the number of soccer clubs in the country doubled. The number of rugby clubs grew almost doubled. The number of golf clubs doubled. All these sports are going. By the way, the number of GA clubs doubled as well because sport was just expanding all the time. During these years, people had more disposable income, even though there is this illusion that the free state was beyond poor throughout all of these years. There were some very poor people in it, but there was money coming into the country as well. And people were using it in very many instances to to play sport. But what what happened was the GEA sought. Now it had access to power because this was an Irish government. It was an Irish, an Irish, an Irish government. They, they, They had its members in power. And they saw they had access and they they constructed a history of the pre-20 period, which is essentially a lie. Uh, it's a complete invention. And in that history, they painted things like no GA man had joined the British Army. All IRA men were members of the Gaelic Athletic Association and so on. Stripped all complexity, as people always do after after. Um, after a revolution mm. really really just standard standard practice even though kevin barry is this iconic image of him he's in the rugby jersey oh forget kevin barry eamon de valera was a rugby was player. a rugby player yeah like like, like the, the high priest of gaelic ireland loved rugby yeah that's that's just but they, they did fact. they successfully again, whitewash this is this something that was that was that was successful for them see, there's class built into that as well and there's access to education and, and the christian brothers well would of have, course would have, would yeah push this narrative it, 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 i i find it really fascinating um sort of uh, slight 
not, not so much a counterpoint, but 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 something that is gets into the spokes of Irish history, because rugby itself, being given that it, it was played in certain schools, yeah. and given that it was you know captains of industry's sons who played rugby, and all of people who would become politicians, people who would have power, enfranchised people, so so it couldn't quite be stamped upon uh, in the same way that soccer could. Yeah, and. It also, yeah, this is this is where this is where conversations in Irish history are always problematic because nobody wants to talk about class in any meaningful way. Oh, we do. Nobody Go for it. Go for it. Yeah, we do. But nobody wa- nobody wants to talk about the fact that the pre- the manner in which games are presented is always the divide is between native games and foreign games, mm. as if the, that's the only access point. For understanding what was happening. Why is that? Um, why is it? Because I think the capacity of Irish nationalists and Irish unionists to reduce everything to stripes and green and orange for their own personal agenda and their own personal needs and for for things is is enduring. And in fact, I would say it's it's worsening. And mm. I would say now it's it's. To have, a, to have a realistic conversation about what Irish nationalism is and what it means is really, really hard because cartoon versions of, of, of the past are constructed to support political causes which strip it of complexity and people don't want to acknowledge that a whole load of people make choices for different reasons. And again, it's, it's complicating that narrative of not just green and not just orange. It's much more than that. And if, if you, you, like you talk about Larkin mm. and, 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 and soccer, mm. but soccer people also don't want to talk about its middle-class aspect as well, mm. which is real. And it's, it's been there already and it's been there all the time. And, and that's just a fact. It's much easier to, to present it as being two lads kicking a can on the back street in the north inner city has been the, the, you know the, the 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 real soul of soccer mm. as if that's just what soccer is in the country so that's a, that's a false story too yeah. like like everybody wants to construct their own mythologies but those mythologies are, are are constructed in such a way that they're a perversion of history and we we have enough people in the world who try to warp history for so, their own ends so, and the so, great example with sport at the moment is putin and how he yeah. constructed so was a that, war of history. Because that was the part of the problem then with the growth of, like, let's say the education predominantly provided by, by religious orders in, uh, in the Republic, um, the Christian brothers having a big influence on, in areas of disadvantage and their view of history. And we might say they're very black and white view of history and they're very definite view of of what might yeah, be the, state the, garr- the garrison, the narrow the garrison, the garrison game, right? And John Giles speaks about not yeah, feeling. He's brilliant it. on it. John, John yeah. Giles is brilliant on it. Amy he is. Dunphy's brilliant on it. They're, 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 he says, I, I don't agree with every word they say. No, but but it's a necessary corrective. He says he didn't. He didn't feel Irish when he left. The, he left the country to go to, to Manchester United as a young person, not fifteen years of age. He didn't think he was Irish because he was effectively told he wasn't within the school system, but by the Christian brothers. Yeah. Now. This connection is that because the garrison game is it because there's a connection with the British Army, or is it this this idea that if you're not playing the game of the Gale, but well, then you're just lesser in terms of your national identity? 
Is that what's Yeah, I, I, I'll come back to that in one second. I just okay. want to tell you while, while it's in my head, a former teammate of those, as Nobby Styles, yes. I found a report in uh, recently from Oliver Plunkett's own Rua GA club off, off the Navin Road there where Nobby Styles was out staying with Johnny Giles' family That's and right, he was yeah. at a dance in the, in the Plunkett's world. Just, just for clarity for listeners, Nobby Styles married John Giles' sister. Yes, that would be the key point that I left out of the story there. <laughs> um, so, so how does it happen? How does it happen that mitts take hold? So you, were you about to that... tell us there that Nobby Styles played GEA for, for Plunkett's own? I was going, yeah, I was going. I should, I could actually, may as well start another mate. Did he? Make no, he up. didn't. Okay. No, he didn't. But may as well just make stuff up. I wish um, Socrates played for Shells. Oh, he did. Yeah. Absolutely. Who did? Socrates he played, for played for Shells. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He played in the UCD Super League. Yeah. He didn't. Yeah. Um, he was in the College of Surgeons, by the way, Socrates, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is, where, where are we now? We're going all, all and I know. That, that uh, was and, Socrates. That um, wasn't Socrates. But ba- ba- Baca Juniors are wear, wear Tipperary colours because they're founded by a Tipperary man. Another <laughs> myth. They were founded by a Tipperary man, but that's not the reason. Anyway, where were we? Nobby Styles. No. John, sorry, you're speaking of John Giles. I will his... tell you one story. I will tell, we'll tell you one story. We'll come back to that in one second. I will tell you one story that is true. 1924 Talton Games. Um, there's a swimming competition held and there's a lack of stars in it. So the Irish delegation led by JJ Walsh, who's the guy who had the paint boxes painted green and found the tour end, went to the Paris Olympics and got some of the American stars to come over to add luster to the games. And one of the people they got to come over was Johnny Weismuller. So Johnny Weismuller went on to star as Tarzan, was the first Tarzan uh, and was Tarzan, like famous, became a famous Hollywood actor. Mm. But... He won the 100 metres in the Talton Games in Ireland, which is a swimming competition which was held in the pond in Dublin Zoo. So I love the fact that Tarzan won, won the swimming competition in the pond in Dublin Zoo. You heard it. Yeah. Fun story. So, anyway, sorry. I'm trying to get back to what were we talking what about? We, we, we talking about the, the Christian brothers and the feeling of, of alienation from, from what they were pushing in terms of the, the Irishness and, and John Giles, what he went through, and Eamon Dunphy and Liam Brady. And, you know, I mean, Dave Langan writes about being given six of the best for playing being caught playing soccer in front of the entire assembly is that was that sort of narrative very much pushed by by the education system and is it also true that the pockets where the game is still popular today in ireland you know longford sligo mortiford athlone that it is the british army heritage did that really kind of hurt its growth or hurt its its place in 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 the new ireland when when national identity was still up for grabs I, I, it's, it's, so there is no doubt that there is an aspect of truth to the fact that there was a, a the, the presence of garrison, garrisons in areas helped the formation of the game because, of course, it's a team to play against and it's a revolving number of players, and it of course means that means that that's the question. The second, the second thing is, um, it doesn't come to it doesn't even come close to explaining the spread of soccer. And part of the way it's soccer spread, and you can see this in the minute books of the Football Association of Ireland and in the Leinster Football Association minute books through the 20s and 30s, where they consciously go to country towns and put on matches in the hope of spurring uh, people to start playing the game. And it works. It's this like Pied Piper effect around the place. And you can't explain things like the growth of soccer in Westport 100 years ago by putting it down to the British Army. This is a game that was spreading everywhere. So why wouldn't it spread across Ireland? Why wouldn't it spread across rural Ireland? It's, it, there's, there's no part of the world that soccer has been to that it hasn't taken hold uh, at, at, at some point. So why, why would it not happen here as well? And to diminish it or to reduce that as an explanation to the Garrison game, just it just doesn't work. 
Well, look, Paul, we've had, I, I, I think we could talk for another three hours, but we've, 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 we've really, really enjoyed uh, your company. I think we've only touched on uh, so much, but, but what you're saying here, it, it isn't as simple as, as, as a nationalistic type narrative would suggest. Even we, we speak about Crow Park ourselves on the, on the tour, that it feels like there's a lot of myths around that you've spoken now about. You've, you've taken two sides of the ground away from, away from that myth between, the, between Michael Cusick and his background and, of course, the, 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 the history of, uh, of 1916. The games where they fit now, soccer, rugby, GAA, it's, it's, it, would you feel that for a younger generation now, I, mean, I know that's not your job, but that a lot of those... Uh, old entrenched traditional views and stereotypes are melting away um, because of the advent of television and, uh, and access to sports um, or, or do we still have a road to travel? I'd look at it slightly differently. I, I, it's, not that, it's not that those old things are melting away. I think what there is is a complete absence of people to push the idea that the old ways actually are the way that they should be because in my own personal view, of it you there are too many stories of too many people crossing codes mm. for me to believe that people were fundamentally different then than they are now what's different is the structure in which things happen and the people who are running the organizations not presenting them in a very particular way and ultimately it's it's the collapse of the idea that you were identified you are you are the collapse of the idea being pushed being pushed by people who are in any sort of position that it is a statement of identity in and of itself to play a game. Final question that I would have, uh, uh, Paul, for you is around the time of Jack Charlton in 1990, and yeah. obviously soccer became hugely galvanized, and it 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 was an international thing. So I, I always found that the, it, with the GAA, there's a strange kind of kind of dovetailed quite way quite well not not with just G, with the J but the national psyche because it wasn't in any way a threat to our own sense of you know Irish you know Irish identity uh, in the country it was an international thing therefore that was acceptable would you would you kind of agree with that or or do you think that's a simplistic over uh, I, I think there's a truth in that and uh, I I I kind of have a different view as well though of the success of 1990 and its meaning. Um, first of all, you can't beat a bandwagon. And I don't mean that in a dismissive way mm. because we all know from GA counties how crowds follow crowds and you can't beat, number one, you can't beat a bandwagon. Number two, you can't beat a party. And uh, the party was extraordinary. And I think that gets a hold on people. But number three, and it plays, absolutely plays into this, there are huge numbers of people who went to soccer matches and international soccer matches in the 60s and in the 70s, who really believed that these teams were going to qualify and then so nearly did. And I remember, like my, my, one of my early, well, not one of my earliest memories because it was 12 and I'm not that slow, but when Ireland, when Ireland got robbed by Belgium. This is un- but I think there's a whole national... Sort of trauma that happened around that game, which I know, it comes age. up all the time. It no, wasn't just, only the Belgium game, by the way. <laughs> no, it wasn't like, only I feel Belgium we need to have some national true. convention where everybody who watched that game and feels robbed by it needs to come but, but, and talk through their emotions. It comes but, but up. This really, I tell you why this matters, Aon. I tell you why this matters because nobody laughs about I, it. I was, nobody jokes about it. Everybody feels as if their soul was ripped out in a really unfair way, and that you know something, you're just a little, little paddy land. You're never going to end from this I, game. I, I watched that at home. I watched that. I watched that actually in my granny's house in in Offaly, and 
um, I had never, I was at 12, I had never played a soccer match. I had never been to a soccer match. I'd never really seen a live soccer match on telly, apart from Ireland matches, because, of course, there were no English league matches live on telly in, uh, at, at that stage. I knew all the players because I read about them in the newspapers. Yeah. I was a rural country boy, right? Right, And everybody I knew in school was utterly devastated by that result. And we were all identical GEA people from GEA backgrounds who all played GEA. But we loved soccer. Yeah. And, and I think you have to be really, really careful, really careful when you look back at the history of sports and to imagine... It is as ideologues painted it. Yeah. That, that, that would be my key point on it. We're going to have to have some kind of a intervention here about that generation of Irish people who watched that game. <laughs> of which I was very much one, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't simply that game, by the way. <laughs> there was a whole load of matches where we were rocked. <laughs> oh, <laughs> generally Bulgaria away. Bulgaria away in 1977. <laughs> and in those days, of course, inevitably what would happen would be... Um, we were the, there'd be, well, there'd be some problem as well with the feed or the ads would go on too long. <laughs> when they finally went back to the match after halftime, Ireland had equalized. <laughs> and, th and, then we go, th and then we got, uh, we were just robbed. Uh, and th that, th there was France away in 1980. The feed for that went as well. <laughs> That's right. That's and, uh, <laughs> but it was a whole old, old good games. Um, and uh, we were talking to Owen Hand later on. Uh, Owen is not shy in letting his uh, <laughs> his opinions be known about the referee and his um, yeah 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 there his you go. motivations. Well, according to Ryan Whedon, we were we were robbed in, in 1990 quarter final. We had him on a podcast there uh, a number of weeks ago. Listen, Paul, thanks so much uh, for for your time and for your expertise. Really enjoyed chatting Thank you. to you. See you, Paul. Uh, my pleasure, lads. Thanks for having me. So thank you for listening. That was the Football Talking Tour podcast with myself, Aon Arruda, and then yourself, Gary Cook. So our Football Walking Tour, you can go on to littlemuseum.ie to find out about the Southside one, footballwalkingtour at gmail.com for the Northside one, and on Twitter, we're at Football Tour Dub. Mm -hmm.